Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As negotiators and heads of state and government converge on Paris for the crucial UN Climate Summit, a warning from one of the first scientists to raise the alarm on greenhouse gases, former NASA researcher James Hansen. We don't know whether we've passed a point where we're going to lose, for example, the West Antarctic ice sheet. If we do, that means sea level rise of several meters. How Paris could counter the threat. Also, counting up the carbon footprint of the Thanksgiving feast and that plate piled high with stuffing, roast potatoes, and pumpkin. So they're seasonal vegetables, and they keep well, and you don't have to do anything crazy like put them on an airplane. So they're fantastic. In fact, you probably can't have lower carbon footprint food than potatoes and pumpkins. Food, climate, and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Paris is the host for the UN Climate Summit starting November 30th, and diplomats are determined to put the failure of the last major session six years ago in Copenhagen behind them. Christiana Figueres, the executive secretary of the UN Climate Convention, says thanks to hard work, virtually all the world's leaders have gotten aboard. This time it is 194 governments, all of whom consistently for the past four years since they decided that they would come to an agreement have actually been marching down the path consistently slowly yes because this is not an easy process but consistently down the path toward an agreement and we are actually on track or in fact they're even ahead of schedule with the milestones that they had um, imposed upon themselves So much is likely to be achieved in Paris, but some scientists point out that even more will have to be done to keep the planet from sliding into climate chaos. To get some perspective, I spoke with one of the first scientists to sound the alarm about the dangers of rising levels of atmospheric CO2, James Hansen of Columbia University, who worked for NASA. Well, it was back in the 1970s. If you remember, that was the time of the chlorofluorocarbons and the ozone problem, where it was realized that humans were changing the atmosphere. And what was a concern then was the fact that loss of ozone could mean more skin cancer. But my interest was, well, what about the effect of that on climate? So I proposed to NASA that we would look at that question, we would need to build a climate model. And at that time, I was actually the principal investigator on an experiment that was being built to go to the planet Venus to study the clouds of Venus. But my proposal was accepted, and I began to work on building a climate model. And that became so engrossing that I resigned as the PI on the Venus experiment and began to devote 100% of my time to climate. And of course, it wasn't just ozone. It's carbon dioxide and methane and nitrous oxide. Humans are changing a number of gases in the Earth's atmosphere. And that becomes a really big issue. And it became clear way back then. How did you feel when you realized that, okay, us humans, we actually could change the climate on this planet? Yeah, well, that was why I switched from Venus to Earth, because there are people living on this planet. So it makes a difference. 
I remember remarking to my friend, Andy Lasis, gee, this is really going to be interesting. Before our scientific careers are over, we should actually see the climate change because that's what we computed in our models, and it was pretty straightforward, that the signal should rise out of the noise within the next few decades, and by the early parts of the 21st century, even the public should begin to notice. But of course, the real issue is what's going to happen from now on, because so far the climate change is relatively modest. We're beginning to see effects. The frequency of extreme events is increasing. But the potential for what will happen several decades in the future during the lifetime of young people is much greater. It's possible that we could push the system beyond tipping points so that young people cannot control the outcome several decades downstream. How close to the edge are we now, do you think? Well, that's the $64 question. We don't know whether we've passed a point where we're going to lose, for example, the West Antarctic Ice Sheet. If we do, that means sea level rise of several meters. We know that we're getting very close if we're not there yet. And that's why it's crucial that we begin to phase down fossil fuel emissions rapidly, or we surely will pass that tipping point. How quickly could things change? How abrupt might climate disruption arrive? Well, that depends on what climate disruption you're talking about. But the one that I am most concerned about is disintegration of the ice sheets and sea level rise. And there, I would argue that we could very well get large changes by the second half of the present century, which would mean just 35 years from now and 35 to 85 years from now. Because if we look at Greenland and Antarctica, we see that they are beginning to shed mass and shedding it at a faster and faster rate. And I argue that it is likely to be a very nonlinear process. That's the big issue now. We don't have models for ice sheets that we can trust to give us an accurate prediction for how soon we can get multimeter sea level rise. But if we look at the Earth's history, we know that there have been numerous times when sea level went up several meters in a century. And that's what we can't let happen, because that would mean all of the history associated with all of our coastal cities would be lost. But it's more than that. It's the, the economic implications of that are practically incalculable. We've got more than half of the large cities of the world are located on coastlines. So we just can't let that happen. By the middle of December, negotiators in Paris are expected to come up with an international binding deal to address climate disruption. They say the stated target is 2 degrees centigrade increase, or about 3.5 degrees Fahrenheit, what do you think of that target? Well, we know that that's not a sensible target because if we look at the Earth's history, the last time it was two degrees warmer than pre-industrial, two degrees Celsius warmer, was the Eemian. Sea level was then six to eight meters higher than it is now. So why would we set that as a target? It doesn't make sense. It was picked out of a hat simply because 
people thought, well, that's probably the best we can hope for because we've already got almost one degree of warming and we know there's more in the pipeline and it's very difficult to move off of our present largest energy source, which is fossil fuels. So what you're saying is that the two degrees Celsius target essentially lines us up for round numbers, about 20 feet more of sea level. Yeah, the Earth's history tells us that two degrees Celsius warming over pre-industrial would end up eventually with the sea level six to eight meters higher. We can't say exactly how fast that would occur, but we know that it would occur. We just don't know which generation is going to be feeling the full effects. But if we look at the ice sheets now and see how rapidly they're beginning to change, it looks to me like it's going to be our children and grandchildren, not some 10th generation in the future. So what's the solution? What would you do if you were in charge? You know, it's really simple. We just have to make the price of fossil fuels honest. We should add a fee to oil, gas, coal. You collect it from the fee from the fossil fuel company at the source, the domestic mine or the port of entry. And 100% of that money should be given to the public. It should not be taken by the government to make the government bigger. Instead, give an equal amount to every legal resident of the country. That way, the person who does better than average in limiting their fossil fuel use will actually make money. With the present distribution of energy use among the public, two-thirds of the people would actually come out ahead. Very wealthy people who have big houses and fly around the world would pay more in their increased prices than they get in the dividend, but they can afford that. So that's the way you would... And you do this gradually. You don't suddenly add a big fee. You add something each year, increase it each year. That gives the public a chance to make changes. The next time they get a vehicle, they can consider getting a more efficient one. Economic studies show that that would work, and it would make the United States more competitive with other countries. If we're an early adapter of this type of policy. We would begin to move our industry and begin to take advantage of our entrepreneurs developing low-carbon energy sources. So it actually makes sense, but the only problem is that our capitals all around the world are heavily under the influence of the fossil fuel industry. We have well-oiled, coal-fired senators and representatives who continue to vote for the industry over the interests of the public. You've been part of the climate activism movement now for a while. What comes next for that? What activists need to understand is the same thing that we're trying to get the public to understand, and that is that you can't solve the problem just by protesting against the bad things. We have to actually make it clear that there is a solution that makes economic sense and which will actually make the public better off. We have to put pressure on the governments to actually do something significant at Paris. Right now, it doesn't look like they're planning to do that. It looks like they're planning to clap each other on the back and say, oh, we all have agreed that we're going to do better. Well, that's not going to do it. What we actually need is an agreement to have a rising carbon fee. 
And frankly, you're not going to get that at a table where you have 180 or 190 countries sitting around the table. It's going to require an agreement between two or three of the major players. And the major players are the United States, China, and the European Union. It looks unlikely that the European Union is going to propose anything sensible. They still have this idea of this half-baked cap-and-trade with offsets, the Kyoto Protocol approach, which was totally ineffectual. What we actually need is a simple, honest, rising carbon fee. And I think that it's very possible that China would be willing to come to such an agreement because they have a huge problem with air pollution and with climate change. And they know climate change is real. And they have more than 300 million people living near sea level. So they will want to solve this problem. And the best way for them to phase down their dirty emissions is to begin to move to clean energies. And the best way to do that is by making the market help move away from fossil fuels onto clean energies. James Hansen is a pioneering climate scientist, formerly with NASA, now Columbia University. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. The World Bank finances major infrastructure for developing countries with a primary focus on reducing poverty. And in recent years, the World Bank has recognized the need to address climate change and has stopped lending money for coal-fired power plants. Rachel Kite is now the World Bank's special envoy for climate change, and she recently spoke with Living on Earth's Helen Palmer. Rachel Kite, you're the vice president and special envoy for climate at the World Bank. Tell me, first of all, we're just about to go into Paris. Where are we at in terms of getting the kind of agreement we need? Well, I think we're in a a quite interesting position because there's extraordinary momentum around action, climate action, from initiatives being announced almost on a daily basis from the private sector to different initiatives of government, civil society is mobilised, there are people walking from every corner of the earth towards Paris. And then there's the negotiation process, which is uh, always inextricably difficult and which I think some people have deep concerns that there's far too much text, which is still undecided. But we have to, at this point, rely upon the diligence and the craft of the French as hosts of the COP in terms of shepherding the diplomacy forward. But at the same time, the decision to bring heads of state to Paris at the beginning rather than at the end is an extraordinary signal that the political space for negotiators to not focus on an ambitious text has been removed. So that's what they're doing right at Paris, you think, bringing the people in at the beginning? They also have got some pre-agreements that seem very strong. Yes, so uh, the heads of state will be in uh, Paris on the opening day, and I would expect to see you know, some very strongly worded declarative statements from heads of state with a clear signal that these are leaders that are prepared to lead. And in the run-up, you know, we have a G20, we have a Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting as well. We have bilateral diplomacy with the French and others travelling the world. Uh, It's an extraordinary diplomatic effort, the like of which we haven't seen before. So do you think we are going to end up with a strong actual agreement at the end of Paris? 
So we're going to end up with a package deal and the package deal will include a negotiated text and I hope that that's a strong and ambitious text but it's too early to tell. There'll be some kind of political declaration which I, I believe will speak clearly to the rest of the world and to the global markets in terms of this is the direction of travel and this is where you should be thinking about investing for the future. We will see remarkable commitments to action from a number of working coalitions of public and private sector working together on specific issues as part of an action plan, and then there'll be a financial package. Underpinning all of that are what they call these intended nationally determined contributions, which is a bottom-up as opposed to a top-down process where every country is filed with the UN basically a first-generation investment prospectus for low-carbon growth. The working parties, uh, these are about what kind of issues? So these uh, coalitions of the working, as we call them, coalitions of the willing having different connotations, um, are really uh, where a number of governments and companies from across different sectors of industry and civil society have got together and said, look, this is an issue that really needs to move forward. We need to act on this and we're not going to or can't wait for an emerging consensus to come. So whether it's on short-lived climate pollutants, black carbon, methane, hydrofluorocarbons, and the Clean Air Coalition that grew up around that, forestry, Tropical Forest Alliance, all kinds of companies with extended supply chains saying we're going to end deforestation in the supply chain, no matter what the Red and Red Plus Agreement says in the Convention. Sustainable energy for all, you know, more than 80 countries and thousands of other groups and companies coming together and saying we're going to deliver clean energy, we're going to increase the amount of renewables in the mix, and we're going to have a revolution in energy efficiency. So there are across a spectrum of issues Often outside of the convention, these remarkable working coalitions now formed and making very substantial pledges. What's the role of the World Bank in all this? Well, we, uh, we're very pleased to be a partner in many of these coalitions. We see how climate change is threatening our underlying mission to end poverty and build prosperity. And so responding to our clients' needs, developing countries and the private sector, we've had to completely rethink the way we do our business. At the same time, we are a very important channel of climate finance and recently agreed to increase by 40% our financing so that we, by 2020, expect to channel $29 billion worth of climate finance every year. This is actually a separate channel from the Green Climate Fund. So if you look at what's flowing today, the OECD has estimated that's $62 billion flowing every year. Probably half of that comes through different multilateral development banks, including the World Bank Group. And then there's the $10 billion in the Green Climate Fund, but not all of that is flowing yet. So the Green Climate Fund, like any financial institution, is slowly getting off the mark and has just last week made its first commitments of financing to different projects. I think what we need is climate finance to flow. We need development finance to be climate smart. And we need all of that to leverage private co-financing. It still leaves out the adaptation um, part. Do you expect there will be a, a robust agreement on adaptation at Paris? Yeah, I think that from the financial perspective, the minority of that $62 billion is going into adaptation. And so I think there are two immediate issues. One is how to make sure that more climate finance goes into adaptation. And then remember that everything that we're negotiating in Paris is for 2020 on. This is 2015. We have an immediate need to boost financing into resilience and adaptation now over the next five years because 
we know that the climate impacts are going to become more and more profound every year. We're going to lose lives and we're going to lose enormous amounts of GDP growth. And so every investment that we can make in resilience will save us funding in, in relief and reconstruction, but it will save us lives too. The World Bank very recently released a report that said it expected another 100 million people in severe poverty by 2030 as a result of climate change. Uh, Do you think this is something that can be diverted? We're in the business of solutions, working with our clients, and so we believe that the kind of aggressive action to mitigate uh, climate change and concentrated investment in adaptation can make those numbers distant threat rather than a reality. This means that countries have to do the things that are not rocket science and need to do them soon and need to do them well. So we want to see carbon prices in all economies. We want to see harmful subsidies removed in both fossil fuels and agriculture. We want to see smart economic management with long-term consistent signals that will allow the private sector and public procurement to move into lower carbon solutions. It's not easy. No country has ever walked this path before, but a lot of the tools that are needed are available to government already, and it requires political will to use them. Rachel Kite, the World Bank's Special Envoy for Climate Change, speaking with Living on Earth's Helen Palmer. By now, many of us are contemplating that Thanksgiving turkey in the rearview mirror. Maybe we've even finished the leftovers. And perhaps we vow we won't indulge quite as much next year? Well, that plate piled high with turkey and trimmings doesn't only come at the expense of our waistline. It also has something of a carbon footprint, as does the trip back home by car or air. So reporter Lou Bluen of the Allegheny Front has been investigating what exactly is the carbon cost of that Thanksgiving feast. Turns out the guy who may know the most about the carbon footprint of an American Thanksgiving hasn't ever experienced one himself. Uh, I haven't actually, although it doesn't look all that dissimilar from our Christmas dinner in the UK. This is Mike Berners-Lee, and he's considered one of the world's leading experts on the carbon footprint of, well, everything. In fact, he wrote a book subtitled The Carbon Footprint of Everything. So earlier this week, I phoned him at his office in the UK to talk a little turkey. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, turkeys are meat. And most of the time, the thing to say about meats is that they're quite an inefficient way of having nutrition. But having said that, chicken and turkeys are very much at the efficient end of the meat spectrum. That's because a Thanksgiving turkey can go from an egg to a bird that's 20 pounds or more in just 14 weeks. So they're not really on the planet long enough to make that big an impact. And it turns out it doesn't even matter all that much if you go with a local bird, which only has to ship from the farmer down the road. Well, it matters a bit, but it would still be fairly small compared to the actual footprint of growing the animal in the first place. In fact, Berners-Lee says transportation might only account for about 25% of the turkey's total carbon footprint, assuming it's not shipping by air. But bottom line, having a turkey on your Thanksgiving table is not all that bad. And the same goes for corn, potatoes, cranberries, pumpkins, and a lot of the other foods that end up on your plate. So they're seasonal vegetables, uh, and they keep well, and you don't have to do anything crazy like put them on an aeroplane. So they're fantastic. In fact, you probably can't have lower carbon footprint food than potatoes and pumpkins. So all in all, the Thanksgiving dinner looks pretty good from a carbon footprint standpoint. 
That is, if you go traditional. Yeah, so okay, well, this year's a little bit different, a little bit of a curveball. But there is no turkey. This is WESA reporter Margaret Krauss. She agreed to let us dissect the carbon footprint of her Thanksgiving plans, which are still kind of coming together. There is a meat that will be grilled outside. Maybe we're doing bratwurst. Maybe we're doing chicken. Maybe we're doing steak. Whatever she decides to cook, it sounds like it's going to be a bit of a fire drill. The plan is to get on a plane and on Wednesday night, hit the supermarket to pick up some supplies when she lands. So check this. I'm getting on a bus that will take me to the airport, that will take me to Minneapolis, that will take me to Salt Lake City, and then driving from Salt Lake City to Provo, Utah. So all in all, a pretty big trip. And that, along with the alternative menu, could get Margaret into some trouble, according to Mike Berners-Lee. Well, yeah, um, red meats are quite a lot less efficient. The carbon footprint of beef would be about 24 kilos of carbon dioxide equivalent per kilo of beef, whereas for Turkey, it'd be nearer three. And the air travel is a real killer. So a Boeing 747 will get through, I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but it's 100 and something tons of fuel per trip. So you end up with an enormous carbon footprint shared out between the passengers and uh, your friend has to take a few tons of it on the chin. Even worse, Berners-Lee says the fact that the fuel is burning higher up in the atmosphere doubles the climate impacts. So drive if you can, better yet, take a train. But how does the carbon footprint of Thanksgiving travel stack up against the Thanksgiving meal? Well, Berners-Lee did a quick calculation on my 500-mile trip back to Michigan by car. So you're getting through about 50 liters of gas. So that would be the same carbon footprint as turning up and finding your way through 50 kilos of turkey, which would be quite an achievement. Yeah, no way that's happening, even with leftovers. And at my house, my mom has a pretty energy-efficient way for storing those. When the fridge fills up, as long as the Michigan fall weather is cooperating, she puts the turkey in her car to keep it cold. Pretty sure that method is keeping the planet safe from harm. Not sure I can say the same for us. I'm Lou Bluen. Lou Bluen reports for the Allegheny Front. Time to discover what's going on beyond the headlines now with Peter Dykstra of the dailyclimate.org and ehn.org, environmental health news. We check in with him most every week, and he's on the line from Conyers, Georgia. Hi there, Peter. Well, hi, Steve. You know, I love the discussions we have each week, but one of the pitfalls of environmental news is that so often it's just bleak news. So since it's Thanksgiving time, I'm going to focus on three things to be thankful for that reach back into history and also have great meaning for our present and our future. Sounds like a plan. There's always room at the table for positive things. Okay, we'll start with parks. From wilderness areas to pocket parks and urban neighborhoods, they're a real salvation. And this week marks the 35th anniversary of one of the biggest developments in U.S. park history, the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act, which pretty much doubled the protected acreage in the U.S. thanks to Congress and a stroke of Jimmy Carter's presidential pen. Well, now that's an anniversary to be thankful for, but I'm not sure the current Congress is really getting with the program on the value of nature. Fair enough. But right now, the action to protect wild places is focused on the ocean. The U.S., U.K., New Zealand, and Chile have all taken major steps to create marine protected areas recently. Thanks to everyone who makes parks special, from the vast preserves of ocean and wilderness to the little parks in our neighborhoods. And now, a word of thanks regarding chemical weapons. Well, wait, I'm not exactly sure I want to thank chemical weapons, Peter. Uh, please explain. 
Well, I'm thankful for the progress that's been made in getting rid of them. It was 15 years ago this week that destruction of the huge U.S. chemical weapons stockpile at Johnston Atoll in the Pacific wrapped up. Nerve gas, sarin, mustard gas, and other barbaric weapons of war incinerated to comply with the international and congressional agreements. There was some concern that even the act of destroying chemical weapons would pose a big risk. But though they haven't always stuck to their commitments, most of the world's nations have forsworn their use, manufacture, and storage. And Johnston Atoll was a particularly bad place to store them with the advancing threat of sea level rise. Right, and here's something that's thankfully cool. After decades of intensive military use and chemical weapons storage, Johnston Atoll is now part of one of those marine sanctuaries. So are we about to go three for three on the thankfulness? What's next? I want to tell you a little story about FOIA, the U.S. Freedom of Information Act. The original act was passed in 1966, pretty much a weaker version of today's law, and one of its most enthusiastic sponsors was a young Republican congressman from Illinois named Donald Rumsfeld. He was eager for a way to keep Democrats in Lyndon Johnson's administration accountable. But soon, federal agencies found ways to thwart public information requests or keep them on hold for months. By 1974, in the wake of the Watergate scandal, Congress and Improved and strengthened the Freedom of Information Act, but President Ford vetoed the bill, egged on by his chief of staff, who uh, was Donald Rumsfeld. Hmm, so he was for FOIA before he was against it, right? That's right. And Congress overrode the presidential veto, and FOIA became the law that allowed a reporter named Karen Dorn Steele to uncover the massive pollution at U.S. nuclear weapons plants in the 1980s. An activist at the Climate Investigation Center to discover some eyebrow-raising financial conflicts in the funding of a researcher, Willie Soon, whose work cast doubt on mainstream climate science earlier this year. But FOIA is far from a perfect transparency weapon. Very far from it. Those embarrassing revelations about Willie Soon took more than five years to produce. And federally funded climate scientists say that political operatives have learned how to exploit the law to harass them, filing enormous requests that cause climate research to stop while scientists collate tens of thousands of pages of documents. And it's still not too difficult for government agencies to sandbag even the most appropriate FOIA requests. So let's be thankful for a potent but imperfect good government law like the Freedom of Information Act as a citizen's tool to try to keep the government honest. Well, tis the season to be thankful, so thanks, Peter. Peter's with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and thedailyclimate.org. We'll talk again when we get back from the climate conference in Paris. All right, thanks a lot, Steve. Have fun in Paris. And there's more on these stories at our website, loe.org. I've got plenty to be thankful for I haven't got a great big yacht To sail from shore to shore Still I've got plenty to be thankful for Coming up, channeling Henry David Thoreau in the quest for climate justice. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As we noted earlier, at the moment, all roads lead to Paris for many passionate about climate protection, including writer Wen Stevenson. I'm a father of two young children, a 15-year-old son 
and a now 11-year-old daughter. And when I thought about this situation and the world that they are growing up into and what this planet may be like within their own lifetime, it really lit a fire under me. But the concerns of Wen Stevenson go beyond his own children. He also sees climate disruption through the lens of the billions who didn't create the global warming problem, but who are on the front lines of suffering. A former journalist, he has turned into a climate activist and published a book called What We Are Fighting For Now Is Each Other, Dispatches from the Front Lines of Climate Justice. There wasn't any one moment, I don't think, when I realized I needed to take this leap into activism any more than there's sort of a single moment when sort of night turns to day. But in late 2009, we saw the UN negotiations in Copenhagen fail. And a lot of people felt that this was a make or break moment for the planet. And I was watching that very closely. And then in the spring of 2010, it became clear that even very weak bipartisan climate legislation in the US Senate was going to fail as well. And this was at a moment in my own life where I had recently left my last job, which was as the senior producer of NPR's On Point. And in that spring, as I was looking for what to do next, I wanted to start writing again. And it was at that moment in that spring of 2010 that I had my kind of holy crap moment, you know, on climate change and realized that, look, we're not dealing with this. And I decided that I couldn't imagine getting up in the morning and working on anything else especially someone in my position with my privilege. I had the ability to, you know, at that moment, decide how to spend the rest of my life. I decided this was the thing. The preface of your book, and let me quote, this book represents no more or no less than my own search for the moral and spiritual wellsprings of that kind of courage and commitment, and my search for that, the very idea of climate justice. Yeah. And in your book, your search for courage and commitment on the climate movement starts with personal reflection and a meditation on Henry David Thoreau. Henry David Thoreau, of course, famous for writing Walden, famous for living out there, probably a little less well-known, as you point out in your book, for being really active as an abolitionist. What if Thoreau's story inspired you? So what I realized around this time in my life, I had started taking walks around some really beautiful conservation land around near where I live. I live in Wayland, Mass., which is west of Boston. And just down the road from Walden Pond, really, my house is about five or six miles south of Walden Pond. And that was one of the places that I occasionally would walk. In fact, one time I decided to get up on early on a Saturday morning and walk to Walden Pond. But it really didn't have much to do with Henry David Thoreau at that point. It was just for the sake of walking. But when I had my climate freakout moment in the spring of 2010, I decided to go back to Thoreau. And... The thing I realized as I went back and reread him, read Walden, read his great essays, is that not only is Henry David Thoreau a really deeply spiritual writer, something I had never really thought about before. On top of that, Henry Thoreau, who's sort of this icon of the American environmental movement, was not an environmentalist, you know, quote unquote. That word would have meant nothing to him. But what he was, unquestionably, was a radical abolitionist. He was a human rights activist. He was deeply involved in the Underground Railroad, along with his mother and his sisters. He personally sheltered runaway slaves, defying the fugitive slave law there in the early 1850s. At one point, he even spirited an accomplice of John Brown's Harper's Ferry raid. And this was at no small risk, personally, to Thoreau. 
this man he was smuggling out of Concord, you know, had a price on his head. And so the way I think of it, and the way I articulate this in the book is that Thoreau's very spiritual awakening in nature really led him back to society and to a very radical political engagement on behalf of his fellow human beings. And so as I like to think of it, as I put it, for Henry Thoreau to live in harmony with nature, so to speak, really is to act in solidarity with one's fellow human beings because the two can't really be separated. When tell me, what's the difference between climate justice to you now and, say, environmentalism? Right, right. Well, there shouldn't really be any difference, (laughs) honestly. For someone like Henry Thoreau, as I was just saying, there really wasn't. There wouldn't be any difference. You would see them as all the same. But there are those, even in the climate movement, certainly plenty of policy experts and people working on this at a political level in Washington who don't really like to talk about justice. I mean, they don't really want to talk about race or inequality. They don't want to talk about the distribution of wealth whether at the national level or much less at the global level, where Pope Francis has reminded us we owe the developing world, the majority of the world's people, an enormous debt, a sort of climate debt or ecological debt. They don't really want to talk about these things because they're politically inconvenient. And, you know, I don't really want to talk about these things either because it's hard to talk about structural forms of oppression that are at the root of this crisis and that prevent us from really honestly addressing it. But, you know, if I'm serious about this, if I'm serious about justice, if I'm serious about climate, morally serious about it, then I have to face these things. And I think we do as a country. Your uh, book is structured both with your own uh, personal epiphany and, and how you've dealt with that, but then you go ahead to tell the story of climate activists And you compare them to the abolitionists, the folks who struck out in such a radical way to fight slavery. In what way do you consider climate justice activists the new abolitionists? Right. Well, I think first, it's really important for me to say, as I try to make crystal clear in the book, that I'm not comparing climate change to slavery, which would be perverse. What I am doing is drawing inspiration from the abolitionists and from the abolitionist movement. I'm saying that our situation calls for a movement that's every bit as radical and resolute, sort of morally and even spiritually, as that movement and other radical human rights movements, you know, in our history. The narrative arc of my personal story is really that of going from, you know, a kind of uh, self-absorption, I guess, to engagement. And it's about sort of about the radicalization of a privileged, white, mainstream, center-left liberal, okay? And there's an analogy in that narrative to what needs to happen socially and politically here in this country, because what has to happen is a kind of radicalization of the mainstream. And when I say radical, I mean that at this hour, at this late hour, to be serious about climate is to be radical, because it's really a radical situation, you know, and it requires us to go to the root, the root of the systems that have created this. That's not going to happen until enough people really come to terms with and face up to the really radical nature of the situation. And historically, so to take it back to the abolitionists, I mean, historically, this is the only way that really deep revolutionary change has happened in this country, is when 
ideas and principles and demands that were once considered radical and extreme, the freedom of African-Americans, for example, when these became mainstream, because radicals went out and forced the issue, right? Whether it was on abolition or women's rights or labor rights or civil rights, gay liberation, marriage equality, all of these human rights struggles, radicals have forced them into the mainstream consciousness and brought about a kind of moral reckoning in our society. You profile a number of people in your book who've gone through that process. Yeah. Let's talk about some here. Perhaps we could begin with Tim to Christopher. Absolutely. In 2008, Tim was an economics student at the University of Utah. He had had his own very profound kind of awakening to the climate crisis. And Tim found out about a Bureau of Land Management auction that was going to take place in Salt Lake City in which leases to drill for oil and gas on public land in southern Utah were going to be auctioned off. And so he decided to go to this auction and join a, a protest outside because, you know, this issue of drilling leases on public land is certainly a, a big environmental issue. And he went down there and he had been preparing himself for a while, you know, to take some kind of bolder, more confrontational action. And he gets down there and there's this little protest going on outside, you know, people walking around holding signs. And it was very tame. And he decided to try to get inside the auction. And they ask him as he walks up, you know, so are you here for the auction? And he says, oh, uh, yes, yes, I am. And then he goes over to this uh, table and they ask him, so are you here to be a bidder? And he says, yes, yes, I am. And they register him as bidder number 70. And uh, he goes into the auction and he's sitting there watching these parcels of public land being auctioned off at bargain basement prices, basically given away to oil and gas companies. And he decides to take action. He starts raising his paddle and he starts actually winning bids for parcels of land until finally he's won bids for thousands of acres worth about almost $2 million that he, of course, has no way of paying. And so he's arrested. He goes to trial and he's ultimately sentenced to two years in federal prison for what he did. His trial became quite an event in 2011 and really helped galvanize the climate movement, the climate justice movement and helped make the climate movement more confrontational and more open to civil disobedience and direct action. He was released in April 2013, and he came to Harvard Divinity School. He's uh, someone else, kind of like Thoreau, who is a very spiritual person, but who has been led back to a radical political engagement. And we sat down, and we've had some very long, very honest conversations about all of this. And that forms a big part of the book. The last chapter of my book is largely my profile of Tim. Bill McKibben and others were really highly effective at rallying people to oppose Keystone. And I'm wondering if the climate activism movement has turned its sights on public lands. Recently, there was a demonstration at the White House demanding that Obama use his powers to stop leasing public lands and onshore and offshore for the extraction of fossil fuels. What do you make of that development? How important do you think it might be? Oh, I think it's hugely important. I think it's, it may very well be the next front in the climate movement. Studies show that, you know, there's enough carbon in the ground in deposits on public lands in this country to more than cancel out the benefits of President Obama's climate policies. In fact, if we were to get it all out of the ground, you know, it would certainly wreck the climate. There would be no hope of ever getting climate change under control. 
So yeah, I think I think this fight hugely significant, and it's I think it's where certainly one of the directions the climate movement is going right now is this focus on extraction on public lands. Absolutely, you're very careful not to prescribe any actions in your book. You say that leadership is spread out over many groups uh, worldwide, but what's your view of what we should do next? You call this a long haul kind of calling. How so? Mm, I don't think that the climate movement needs to get deeply engaged in the nitty-gritty details of the current policies that are being proposed because most of them really all of them you know don't really address a situation at the scale and urgency that's required and it's kind of pointless to get bogged down in a sort of gridlocked partisan debate over (laughs) non-solutions so what we need to be doing is really forcing the issue and telling the truth however extreme it may sound which is that we're still a long way from where we need to be on this. So the negotiations around the UN Paris Climate Summit indicate that there will be some kind of a deal, although scientists who reviewed the present commitment say that it would lead us to a little more than six degrees Fahrenheit warming by the end of the century. How relevant do you think the UN climate process is? So think about what you just said, three and a half degrees Celsius. In 2012, the World Bank came out with a very influential report prepared by Germany's Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, one of the foremost, if not the foremost, climate science outfit (laughs) in the world, saying that we're on track for four degrees and that a warming of four degrees is most likely beyond our civilization's ability to adapt. And so therefore, quote, must be avoided, (laughs) which we're not doing. We're not. We're not avoiding it. I want an honest national conversation about what we're really facing, what the science says we're really facing, what it will really take to address it, and what the consequences of our failure to address it are likely to be. When it comes to that conversation, it comes to telling the truth or failing to tell the truth about climate change. You know, there there are, I like to think of it as sins of commission and sins of omission, all right? Climate science deniers are guilty of sins of commission, right? They're telling outright lies. They're purposely misleading people and ultimately for profit, for political power. People like Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, certainly not doing that, but they're guilty of sins of omission. They're not telling the whole truth. In fact, they're leaving the most important parts out. So they talk about what a serious threat climate change is, but they don't bother to mention that we've all but run out of time to address it in a meaningful way. And they don't tell us what's really necessary to address it, the actual depth and speed of the emissions cuts required. But no one in American politics is really talking about how large the gap is, you know, the so-called ambition gap between what's, you know, what we say is politically possible and what scientists say is physically necessary, right? And we're certainly not spelling out for the American people what the likely consequences of our failures are likely to be. So I would love to hear Hillary Clinton, for example or Bernie Sanders, for that matter, really explain to the American people, really spell it out for us, just how far we are from addressing, addressing this, you know, and how they envision the United States leading the world in closing the gap. This is an emergency situation, and we need to start acting like it. So what do they propose that we do? Glenn Stevenson's new book is called What We're Fighting For Now Is Each Other, Dispatches from the Front Lines of Climate Justice. Wen, thanks so much for taking the time with me today. You're very welcome, Steve. Thanks. 
And now, a word about the next assignment for the crew at Living on Earth, COP21, the 21st conference of the parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, runs from November 30th to December 11th in Paris. This summit is being hailed as a critical chance for the nations of the world to work together to stave off catastrophic climate disruption. And we'll be there to help keep you informed. Of course, this comes at a difficult time. The recent ISIS attacks have not only shaken the French capital, but much of the Western world, and security concerns have led to cancellations of some major civil society demonstrations. But Paris has a long history full of dramatic events, from the revolution and the reign of terror to its fall to the Nazis in 1940. The last time I saw Paris, her heart was young and gay. No matter how they change her, I'll remember her that way. So please stay tuned as we work to bring coverage of what could become a turning point in world history. And if you hear of something we should report, please send us an email to comments at LOE.org. We leave you this week, not in Paris, but in the southeast of France near Brest. It's early morning, and the birds are starting to sing in the hedgerows and fields. You can distinguish a blackbird singing loudly to wake up the world, and a church bell tolling. The area around Brest is famous for its chickens. They raise over one and a quarter million of them, and it's blue cheese, bleu de Brest. This soundscape comes from the CD Dawns of the World, recorded by Jean Rocher. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation and brought to you from the campus of the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Baskin, Emmett Fitzgerald, Lauren Hinkle, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jenny Doring, John Duff, Amber Rodriguez, and Jennifer Marquis. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jake Rigo, Noel Flatt, and Jeff Wade. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And like us, please, on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the protection of the environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Candida Fund and Trinity University Press, publisher of Moral Ground, Ethical Action for a Planet in Peril. 80 visionaries who agree with Pope Francis, climate change is a moral issue for each of us. TUPress.org. And Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. PRI, Public Radio International.